TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Welcome to the podcast. And now... You're listening to TalkLine with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to the program, Mom. Zev Brenner to Israel we go via the west side of Manhattan. Michael Eisenberg is co-founder and general partner of Olive, an early stage venture capital fund with over $500 million under management. He's been a venture capitalist for 25 years. Olive focuses on partnering with great Israeli entrepreneurs to build large, meaningful companies and impactful global brands. In addition to that, he's also written three books, including Ben Baruch, which is about the Brachot uh, in the Jerusalem Talmud. Uh, His other book is called The Vanishing Jew, a wake-up call from the book of Esther. And his latest book, at least in English, he has others in Hebrew, is called The Tree of Life and Prosperity, based on economic principles from the book of Genesis for the 21st century. And it's under the Wicked Book imprints. He's originally from the west side of Manhattan. And uh, he davened in the same shul that I davened, the Rabbi Vorhan Stiebel on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. He has a Long Beach connection, having been at the Bach and also with Little Beach Synagogue connected there as well. So welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Zev. I, I want to give you a compliment. When, when my, I, first, my daughter Lizzie said, you got to interview Michael. He's written a fascinating book. She loved your book about anti, the vanishing Jew. So she said, you got to interview Michael. My son said he heard you 2013 in Yeshiva University, and something that you said stuck with him. And he said that you quoted, he quoted you saying that, uh, that really learning Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law, shouldn't be up to rabbis. It should be for the average person because they're in business. They need to know it. So. And it's really true. It's really true. You know, you, you have to run into real life in order to run into the real Shulchan Aruch. Right. So he says, so really the rabbis, don't, they need to know, but not really as much as the average person because the day-to-day business. And you've devoted yourself. You have a successful company. You're a venture capitalist. And, in fact, you went to Gush Etzion in Israel. Didn't Rav Amital tell you that you should open up a factory and employ 10,000 people? Yeah, that, that's true. I, I asked him when I was 19, and we were like 15 guys in a room, uh, right after the first Gulf War, I said, is there a bigger mitzvah of Yishuv Eretz Yisrael settling the land for somebody who uh, moves to a populated place, Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, or you have to move to an unpopulated place to really fulfill the mitzvah? And he said, it's all nonsense, real nonsense. You need to make Aliyah move to Israel and open a factory that will employ 10,000 people to earn an honest and decent living. And that's really important. He said that would be the biggest uh, mitzvah. And so on the spot, I kind of decided I would, I would make Aliyah and see if I could employ 10,000 people. It was the first time a rabbi connected for me uh, the importance of, of Jewish principles and Torah um, and the economy. And, you know, that's kind of been my life pursuit ever since is uh, how do we employ tens and if not hundreds of thousands of people to earn an honest and decent living? Well, wow, so you didn't, you didn't open the factory, but you're employing thousands of people. The factories turn out to be passe in the 21st century. It's all about technology now, and I've been really blessed to be, you know, in, in the innovation economy and technology, and feel very fortunate about that. So, how did you get involved with that? Here you are from the United States. You were inspired to move to Israel by going to yeshiva in Israel. How did you go from there, from being a very successful venture capitalist? Um, I actually started in political consulting. That was my first job when I got to Israel. I worked for a firm based in Boston for a year and a half or so. 
And then I was laid off and nobody told me and I actually had a hard time finding a job, a really hard time finding a job. I didn't have an army network. I didn't do the army here. People don't want to hire me. Um, and really out of some level of desperation, I started something which kind of became a merchant bank for tech. It was the early days of tech in Israel. And um, it, 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 it turned into like a merchant bank for tech that became a venture capital fund. And then I've been at three venture capital funds and that's really where the economy is. And, uh, you know, I, I think the future uh, of the Jewish peoples in Israel, and I think the future of the economy is in tech, and I feel very, very, you know, blessed and privileged to be at that intersection. Well, Israel's certainly a leader in high tech, and but a lot of it comes from the army, so the fact that you didn't have that experience makes it even more interesting because a lot of people make the connections, especially dealing with technology that the, the Israeli army has developed and they've taken and made it civilian use. Absolutely. Uh, those networks matter. One of my partners came out of one of those uh, great units in the army. And, but, you know, Israel is a welcoming country, and uh, it's a country where I say there aren't six degrees of separation. There are only two. Everyone's got a direct line to the prime minister. Just ask them. And uh, it's, it, you know, you can get around it if you're willing to kind of put yourself out there. Uh, people are very accommodating and take in, and a lot of people are very good to me early in my career. People like Shlomo Kalish and Jonathan Medved, who's now at our crowd, and, and Neil Cohen, and and others, and uh, Nahum Sharfman of Blessed Memory, who started Shopping.com, and Amir Ashkenazi, and Dan Sipporin. And so I, I just feel super blessed that they've taken me in. Oh, that's terrific. Now, tell me, one of your earliest ventures was was sold to Kodak. Tell us about it. I'm referring oh, to man. Picture Vision. Yeah, so this is a great story, actually. Uh, I was on a plane back to Israel for one of my first business trips, and I knew nothing. Um, I was this kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed merchant banker. I didn't even know what that was with a fancy card. And um, and I really knew nothing. And sitting next to me was a guy named Gor Shomron, who's like an Israeli technology legend. And he says, man, I got this guy. He's down on his luck. His name is, he didn't tell me his name, actually. And he said, uh, we well, meet with him. He's doing something, this thing called the Internet. And this is like early 95 or so. And the Internet was really new in the world and certainly new in Israel. And I, I was fortunate. When I was in YU and edited the newspaper, uh, we knew this thing called the Internet because we were early to digital printing because we were a poor newspaper at the university, and I edited the commentator, the, the oh, YU newspaper. Oh, YU newspaper, the commentator, sure. <laughs> yeah, I was, the, I was the editor-in-chief or co-editor-in-chief alongside of a guy named Michael Kelman. And, but we had to send things over a modem, so I knew a little bit what this was. Anyway, I get back to the office. The next day is a call from a guy named Yaakov Ben Yaakov. I literally thought it was a prank. Um, such a I, I, thought, I, thought he, I thought he was getting ready for your book on prosperity from the book of Genesis, Yaakov and Yaakov, a better name for it. But anyway, go ahead. Exactly. Anyway, I go to meet him in his house in Givad Zev, just outside of Jerusalem, in, in the attic, and the kids are running around, and you know he's unemployed, basically, running this company that no one will invest in, because what's the internet? And he was uh, digitizing pictures, negatives. There was, used to be a thing called negatives. People may remember that. Um, and uploading them to the browser, you think on the internet, and you can send them across the world, I would say instantaneously, except it took a lot of minutes because bandwidth was slow. It was the early days, and browsers were slow. Uh, Netscape had just come out a few months earlier, and but it captivated me. And you know, my family lived in America still. Uh, they moved afterwards, and it's kind of like, okay, we can send pictures of our new daughter. This is amazing. Um, and we ended up raising six hundred thousand dollars from a bunch of angels. Now they're called angels. Then they were called uh, I don't know, friends, wonderful people. friends. <laughs> Yeah, but, and, but didn't, uh, you make, didn't you make the commitment before you even had the money? Yeah, we did. Uh, okay, you took, you, took a, you took a leap of faith. Well, we we committed fifty thousand dollars, which was our fee from raising the six hundred thousand dollars or so, and um, 
And we raised the money, and the thing ends up getting bought by Kodak. Um, and, Co and Kodak's moved to digital. By the way, the interesting epilogue to the story about what happens to people who don't innovate is Kodak buys them, and then the Kodak Film Union keeps out these guys, Yaakov and Elliot and Phil Garfinkel, because they're the digital guys, and they threaten the film business. And we all know what happened to Kodak. It went out of business because it didn't move to digital. This was their hope. But the union, the film union, prevented the digital guys from coming in. And, uh, you know, I'm very proud of these guys still today. Yaakov and I are still in touch. Um, and uh, just amazing people who, who changed our lives, by the way. We couldn't be doing sharing photos if they weren't the first. But did, did you have financial success? Because it could have, obviously, if they would have developed it more, it would have meant more to your bottom line. The fact that they let it languish and didn't do anything with it, did that hurt the sale or did it hurt your making money from that venture? No, they paid cash. A uh, really important lesson in investing is if, uh, if you don't believe in the company that's buying you, take cash, not stock. Or if you get the stock, sell it. So, uh, no, but they paid us cash. It was fine. They paid. But they me. did when it was their problem and their loss. Okay, terrific. Okay, because they didn't give you just shares. You got actual cash. So that's a good lesson yeah, for people. We only got to cash learn. at the time. <laughs> very, very important. So you went from there to other companies that you involved. You write in your book, which is fascinating because you combine Torah with business, I guess the two different Bibles, the Bible of Economics and the True Bible, which is the Torah. You write the fact that most of these high-tech companies or most of these investments that venture capital invests, most of them fail. But I guess you count on the big ones to be successful. Yeah, you know, I, I'm wrong more than 50% of the time and we don't get it right and it's a, it's a risky business. But uh, And you need the ones that succeed to make up for the ones uh, that fail. You know, but I, I want to refer to something you said. There are two Bibles, the Bibles of economics and the Bible that's the, the true Torah. I actually think it's one. And, and, and part of the point I'm trying to get across in the book is, you know, if we fill most of our day with work, which we do, by the way, we work more than we sleep and we work more hours than we spend with our children. So, and if the Torah is something to say about human life and the human condition, then it needs to necessarily talk about the issues around the economy, the issues around work. Um, you know, the parsha about Avram coming to the land of Israel, the word rechush, possessions, is said seven times. That's what's called in German a, a leitvorter, or in Hebrew, it's called the Milam Ancha, which is a leading word, a word that tells us what it's about. And it's about possessions and Avram's treatment of wealth. And we know that Noah, Noah is an inventor. He invents the plow. He invents fermentation and wine. And if you go all through the book of Genesis, Bracious, you will discover that innovation, economy, business, money is a core topic. We have a whole parsha dedicated to Avram negotiating his purchase of, you know, the burial cave, the Maratha Machpelah in Hebron. We have large portions dedicated to Yosef's managing of the economy in Egypt. In fact, by the way, the Abarbanel asks, why are there so many chapters dedicated to Yosef's managing the economy of Egypt? Shouldn't this be in the historical annals of Egypt? And the answer is, no, it shouldn't, because the Torah has what to say about how we manage a national economy, because the Torah has what to say of how we manage wealth. The Torah has what to say about innovation, and the Torah has what to say about negotiation. That's core to what the Torah is. No, you're absolutely right, but people tend to separate. Listen, 
the Torah has everything there, how to conduct business. And if you're ethical, I know we will talk about the fact that you like working with companies that are ethical and you've pulled out from ones that were not. Um, this is a way of, a way of life, which also includes business. But people tend to look at business as one realm and look at Torah something else. But the truth is, and this is the whole concept even of Torah Mada, the Torah encompasses everything. You mentioned Avraham. He was the first fundraiser, by the way, and a very successful one. But business didn't, according to the rabbis, business didn't spoil him because he went to Egypt poor, came back laden with gifts and lots of money, but he still stayed at the same dinky hotels that he stayed on the way in with the rabbis' teachers to show us that he didn't let the wealth spoil him. Yeah, by the way, I think uh, Avram goes wealthy to Egypt. He doesn't go poor to Egypt. Well, yeah, actually, they, they 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 put down at least a comment, that maybe there's a discussion, right. that he didn't have. In fact, I think it was Rashi said he stayed at the same hotels when he didn't have money. That When he had money on the way back, he made a point of going to the same ones. Yeah, I think you're correct about Rashi, but I think if you read the, the actual text, that's not what happens. He, he, he has wealth and possessions when he comes. Rashi interprets the fact that there's a famine, if my memory serves me correctly, is, is that he you know, becomes unwealthy, but we have no proof for that in the, in the text. He goes with wealth and he comes back with more wealth. It says, Kaved Me'od. He's very well laden. Before that, he was just wealthy. Now he's super wealthy when he leaves Egypt. The big difference is Lot, by the way, and this is a super important thing, which is that uh, when Avram leaves uh, Haran, his birthplace, or maybe the place he lived, depending on the commentary, uh, and he comes to the land of Canaan, Canaan, uh, Israel, uh, the Torah tells us that he comes with his wife and 70 uh, souls and his, all his possessions and Lot. Right. Now, why is it tells about Lot? We only know one thing about Lot. You know what it is? He, loved, his nephew? he loved money. No, no, that we don't know that yet. He doesn't have any yet. He's an orphan. Lot is an orphan. We know that his father dies. That's what we know from the end of Parshas Noah. We just forget it. And so the Torah is already telling us that if Avram comes laden with wealth to the land of Israel... Most important is take care of the orphan. Then they go down to Egypt. And the thing we know when they leave Egypt is not only is Avram very wealthy, Lot is now wealthy as well. It tells us that Lot also has wealth when they leave Egypt. So when Avram goes down there, he uses talent, skills, wealth, not just to make himself wealthy, but to make his orphan nephew wealthy. It's not charity. It's not redistribution. He invests in him and he shares some of his skills and maybe they have a partnership, but we don't know. But they both leave wealthy. What then happens, though, is they split. They start splitting even before Lot goes to Sodom, in that Avram goes on a spiritual pursuit. The word used in the Torah is masa'av, his spiritual pursuits, and he does it alone. Whereas Lot thinks that I made money because I'm successful, talented, and I did it myself, and I wanted a place where no one's going to bother with me about wealth, and I can be selfish. That's called Sodom. And Avram said, we got to keep spreading this. we got to keep investing in people and raising them up as well in a challenging economy. And that's the difference between the two of them. If I remember correctly, the commentators note that the reason why Lot hung around Avram because he had a wealthy uncle and he wanted to hang out with him because he he really loved money. And this is brought out, and I'm sure there are many different opinions about it. That's the beauty of Torah. You have 70 yeah. facets to it. And they were all correct, even though they said, look, seem to be contradictory. Our guest from Israel is Michael Eisenberg, co-founder and general partner Aleph, an early-stage venture capital fund with over $500 million under management. He's a book writer. His latest book deals with economics and Torah. It's called The Tree of Life and Prosperity, Eitz HaChayim V'HaKesef, Economic Principles from the Book of Genesis for the 21st Century. We're going to be right back. Don't go away. Stay tuned. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
talk line radio and TV with Zeb Brenner is just phenomenal. Everybody concerned about the Jewish community should listen and watch. He has the best guests. He asks the most interesting questions. He's always so well prepared. It's talk radio and television from a Jewish point of view at its very best. To advertise on the Talkline network and Talkline's email and social media blasts reaching over 70,000 people, please call 212-769-1925, extension 100. That's 212-769-1925, extension 100. Or email info at talklinenetwork.com. You're listening to Talkline with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brenner. Michael Eisenberg is our guest, co-founder and general partner at Aleph, an early-stage venture capital fund with over $500 million on the management. He's been a venture capitalist for 25 years. His company, Aleph, is partners with great Israeli entrepreneurs to build large, meaningful companies and impactful global brands. He's written a few books. His latest one is entitled The Tree of Life and Prosperity, Eitzachayim Ve'akesev, Economic Principles from the Book of Genesis for the 21st Century. It's a Wicked Son book. Why did you pick a Wicked Son from from Exodus uh, as opposed to the Righteous Son or the Son who doesn't know how to ask? I didn't pick anything is the truth, but my... Uh... My publisher, that's their imprint for their Jewish books. I think, you know, it stands out. We have a saying at Olive, our fund, different is better than better, and I guess they've taken that on. The fact that you asked the question means that the brand is working. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, got my attention. How's the, how's the book doing? You know, thank God, um, on, the, on the eve of launch, meaning uh, on the 23rd, I hit uh, the book hit number one on Amazon, both in business ethics and in Old Testament commentaries, those things don't go in common very often, let's just say. Um, you're not finding uh, books making it in both categories to the top. And it, it, it number one, and new releases in both of those categories. And uh, we're now in the top 4,500 or 4,300 books in Amazon on launch day. And it's, uh, it's super exciting. And uh, people from all across the spectrum, by the way, uh, Jewish, non-Jewish. Uh, I was going to ask you that. Does the book appeal to Christians or non-Jews as well? It has. You know, I've been on a bunch of uh, podcasts, Christian podcasts, and, um, you know, people aren't, aren't religious but are just investors in technology. People are tweeting. Uh, Keith Raboy, who's a very, very well-known venture capitalist, uh, tweeted out that every founder ought to read this book. Every startup founder ought to read this book. And Gavin Baker, who, as you can tell from the name, is probably not Jewish, is the, uh, you know, a big investor in public markets, etc. And he tweeted that, um, this is the best book written on venture capital, and it's a biblical commentary, you know. And so I, I think it's super relevant for for all kinds of audiences. And and my editor Adam Bello really made it accessible to everybody. Yeah, because I, because I, listen, it's nice to see because you quote very heavily from the rabbinical sources and from the Torah. It, it's all it could also be a partial book companion, even though it's heavy laden with the economics and the and also dealing with financial matters. But certainly, if you're you'd have to enjoy the Torah. So I'm glad to see that it has a broad basis uh, beyond just the Jewish community. Yeah, just so you know, it's interesting you say that. We had a big debate. Uh, when I published the book at first, whether we should arrange it topically or we should arrange it by Parsha. And it was really important to me to arrange it Parsha by Parsha because that's how we read and that's how we discuss things with our kids at the Shabbat table. And so it's arranged Parsha by Parsha. I think it is an absolutely a Parsha companion. Um, and uh, that's that's how I wrote it, by the way, uh, based on conversations at the Shabbat table that then became notes, that then became missives, that then became a book. And so... Um, 
you know, I don't read it anymore, but uh, I hope people read it alongside the partial. We start Bracious in a, in a few weeks, and I hope people uh, do that. Which also means that obviously you're going to have four more volumes in English coming out, right? Yeah, so in Hebrew, uh, Bracious is written and Shmos is written and Vayikra is written. They're all out. And uh, Bracious and Shmos both hit the bestseller list in Hebrew and Israel. And Vayikra was a little hard for people to swallow, although candidly, I think it's the best of the bunch. And um, uh, it was just picked up by a big intellectual book club, and they'll, they'll buy 3,000 copies. So uh, I hope it'll help catapult the book. But um, all those are coming out in, 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 in English. Second volume on Shmos will be called Everyone Can Be Moses, which is uh, t- a takeoff from the Rambam in, uh, in Hilchos Tshuva. Great, looking forward to that. So tell us about, I know you lead your life ethically, and you like only investing in companies or working with companies that work in an ethical way. Is that hard to find today? Because you write in your book, a lot of a lot of companies like to cheat, even big ones that you wouldn't expect them to do so, do that. So is that difficult to find? Hey, look, I try. You know, We don't get it right all the time. And um, and it's principles, right? It's timeless principles that matter. But but my view is, and I think what the Torah teaches us is that you know business and doing good are, are, are not dichotomous; they're they're one and the same. And in the 21st century, in particular, because of transparency, because of the way consumer behavior has changed, because of the way business behavior has changed, businesses that are not principles based are going to have a hard time competing over time. And this is I'm an investor. I'm not. A, you know, I get charity on the side also, but this is not a charitable view. This is, I think, the best businesses are based on these timeless principles as articulated in the Torah. And I think these timeless principles will create better, longer-lasting businesses in the 21st century. And my investors, it's not my money. I get money from limited partners, from investors, big endowments around the world, expect me to deliver outsized returns, especially given the risks that I take. And I think these principles lead you to deliver outsized returns, and that's the goal. So have there been companies that looked very profitable that you wanted to be involved with and you felt they were not ethical that you said, I'm not going to invest with them? Anything stand up and stands out in your mind? You know, so there, there was a company where, uh, you know, for my balance sheet, I probably messed up. Um, but when I went to look at the customer base, I noticed that most customers were losing money. And uh, I could bring myself to invest there. Um, and candidly, I, I don't invest in China. Um, and that's probably been a losing strategy on a, on a personal basis. It's not the focus of my fund. Um, but uh, my view is and has been that uh, freedom is a precondition for capitalism. And capitalism, in this sense, I don't mean the system of the economy, but out of the notion that you own your own property. Uh, you know, the Torah says... Uh, that God promises Avram that he'll leave Egypt with a lot of rechush, property. Now, why? Who cares? Just get them out of there. They've been slaves for 210 years, 400 years. Get them out. And the answer is that part of being free is owning property. And that's a statement as to whether you're free. And by the way, when you get to the Ten Commandments, the Aserta de Brot, you see that you have a, a something, uh, do not steal and do not covet. Well, why? Because there's private property. You don't need those commandments if there is no private property. And so if you're not free, you don't own anything. My view of China was if you're not free, you don't own anything. And when Ant.com, started by Jack Ma, had their IPO canceled by the Chinese Communist Party and government, I think everyone woke up and said, you don't own anything if there's no freedom. 
And uh, like I said, over the long term, the balance sheet may have suffered from this over the reason term. But I think over the long term, this is this is a winning strategy. Well, I think right now the world seems to want to move away from China because there's too much economic power and products are based there. So I think the world is coming to a view that it should be diversified. Not everything should be almost exclusively made in China. So in the long term, your strategy, I think, may pay out. Yeah, like I said, I may have given up some short-term profits, but I think in the long term, the strategy uh, is correct. Um, I- certainly avoid some embarrassment. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it, we need freedom. And I would assume that you not that uh, that you would not invest in a company such as Ben and Jerry's, which is getting a lot of controversy in Israel and here, right? Uh, well, you know, Ben and Jerry's is owned by Unilever. So there's no opportunity to invest in Ben and Jerry's. But and I will say about Ben and Jerry's, um, this this will shock some of your listeners. I'm actually really happy that they did what they did. Uh, really happy. Why? Now I know not to buy their ice cream. And um, I, you know, before that, they could have been supporting all sorts of nefarious causes, and I wouldn't have known. And actually, they've come out and said this now. And we see that these are unprincipled people because they'll sell their ice cream in China where the Uyghurs are being uh, oppressed. They'll sell their ice cream in Syria. We all know what's going on there, but they won't sell it like, you know, in, in, in Judea and Samaria. I mean, give me a break. What that is, is it's a small market. It's not a big deal. We're not really taking any risk. But let me see them be big guys when there's big money on the line like in China. So this is what I call relativist political expediency dressed up as values. And I'm glad we learned that. So I'm happy they said it. And uh, there's plenty of ice cream in the world. This is not like a rare earth metal. You know what I'm saying? And we can find, I love Haagen-Dazs better anyway. Right, exactly. Now, people say it's not such a great ice cream, so why are people going so crazy? And the irony is, is that I spoke to the owner of the franchise of Ben & Jerry's in Israel. He's awesome. He's awesome. He's awesome, and he sells less than 2% of the company's product as sold in Judea and Samaria, and a good percentage of those Palestinian Arabs. So what's the whole big deal about it? Under Israeli law, he's not allowed to dissociate Judea and Samaria. He'd be violating Israeli law. So, By the way, under some U.S. law, they're not allowed to do it either, and, and Ben Jerry's not allowed to do it. So they're anti-boycott laws in Illinois and Kentucky and other places like that. But like I said, this was relativist political expediency, to be accepted into a certain kind of bonton, uh, you know, religious politicization of, of a topic. And, you know, good luck, Ben and Jerry. Yeah, good luck. Can you give us an example of a success story where you invested in a company which you weren't sure it was going to go, you thought it looked interesting, and it turned out to be a major hit? Well, you know, you generally don't invest unless you have high conviction because the risks are so large in venture capital that high conviction is fundamental. And so I, I have very high conviction when I invest. So I, um, you can't not. You need an iron stomach for this business because there's so many risks. Um, so no, I can't think of anything like that. Because, <laughs> so, because like you said before, most of the products or most of the company you invest in are not going to make it. When you make it when you make it big, you make it big. And when you lose, you lose big too, right? It's, yeah. But, but it's asymmetric. You know, in my business, you can only lose one times your money, but you can make money multiples. And But it's not for the faint of heart. You know, one, one of the hard things about this business is you're failing so often you have to really uh, live with failure. Right? You know, one of, the, one of the things growing up uh, Orthodox Jewish in, in New York is, it's actually hard to fail because you got to walk into shul and walk into the community and you know be a failure. And I think I think we need to get better at teaching kids that it's okay to fail, and it's, you know and being a failure. You know I, I 
I was unemployed for a while, right? Being in my career and, um, and, and kind of picking yourself up and working harder is, is, is really, really important. And, uh, and, uh, in, in the technology economy, there are failures in the innovation economy, there are failures and we just got to get better. I think one of the important things about, about the Torah is exactly that it teaches us to we're all human beings and, and, and we fail and we're human and we just got to get better at it the next time. Now, one of the things that I think is growing in Israel is the Haredi market, where they're starting to get involved in companies and high tech, and yeah, you see some that are directed to that. Have you been involved with the Haredi sector in developing some of the high tech companies that are coming from that uh, group? I, I have not been involved in what you would call a high tech company per se. I am involved in some not for profit efforts uh, there, and you know, uh, the Haredi sector, as far as I'm concerned, are entrepreneurs like every other entrepreneur. I don't care what you wear or what you look like or what you did. If you have a good idea and good execution and technology, I, I want to be your investor. How many people come pitching you all the time? I'm sure you must be inundated with people saying, I got a great idea for you, Michael. Uh, many a day. You know, last night we did an event in Tel Aviv for the launch of the book, and uh, I was signing books. And there were at least 25 or 30 people there and come to hear about the book. We came to stand online and pitch me. And so, uh, you know, I go on a shul and people are pitching me. On Shabbos too, to, right? Uh, yeah, well, so the best thing in the world is Shabbos. And, you know, I've always had this radical view that I won't talk about any business topics on Shabbos and serve me super well. I can get out of shul uh, without getting pitched. And uh, But, yes, it happens in shul often. Meyer, if I had a guy who's come to me in Meyer of the last uh, twice or three times the last couple of weeks, he waited wait for me on my Meyer minute to, to pitch me on his idea twice. Wow, wow. Did you end up investing in it? No. <laughs> is that because he came twice? Had he come three times, uh, three times as a chazaka or no? <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. I, now, I don't know. You've written a book, of course, dealing with Torah themes. And as my son Menachem Leib said, he heard at YU, that's the thing that stood out, is that how important it is to incorporate these Jewish values, Jewish halacha, Jewish law in the business practice on a day-to-day basis. Is there a particular personality in Chumash that you find embodies, you know, the business and the ethical and somebody we should emulate? Um, I think there's different lessons from different people uh, in the Torah. I, I am much more struck by the uh, ongoing themes than I am by the individuals uh, in the Torah and what we can learn from these different individuals, but, but, but in context. Um, and so... You know, I think I think they're there uh, to teach us timeless lessons. But 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 I, I will mention Noah. Um, I, I think the story of Noah is really 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 instructive. Um, everyone thinks about Noah says, "Oh, who's Noah? He built the ark. Oh, and he saved the world from the flood." But I think the the definitional stories around Noah are actually not about the ark. They're about before and after the flood. And and before the flood. Uh, Chazal say, the sages say that Noah invented the plow, but it's it's in the verses. If you just read them carefully, it's in there. It wasn't like they invented something, uh, Chazal, the sages. It's it's in the verses. And he, he built uh, a mechanical object that increased prosperity and abundance and made food plentiful. Uh, he had a forefather five generations earlier. His name was Yared, Jared. Yared was the first Thomas Malthus uh, of the universe. Thomas Malthus, of course, is an Anglican priest who thought the world was coming to an end and there wouldn't be enough food to feed everybody. And here we are a couple of hundred years later, all around, there's enough food. Yared said, stop having children. So people start having children at later ages until Noah, he, he 
you know, uncorked abundance and agricultural abundance by inventing the, the plow. But then humanity destroyed itself from abundance and licentiousness took hold and Hamas, which today is a terrorist movement in Gaza, took hold there. But Hamas in the biblical sense means a lack of trust from stealing a little bit here and stealing a little there. That's from the Talmud and Peah. And, um, and that's the first story of Noah. So Noah invents the plow, but he doesn't create a principles framework around it, an ethical framework around it for good use, and society destroys himself. And then after the flood, Noah invents wine and fermentation and chemistry. And by doing this, he could have solved a big problem of dirty water. We know when there are floods, there's brackish water. But, and wine is actually the water of the ancients because it's alcoholic, it's clean. But again, Noah doesn't invent an ethical framework around it, and so he gets drunk and he's abused by his son in his drunken stupor in his tent. And so I think the lessons of Noah is that innovation happens a lot. Innovation creates abundance, and it's super important and propels society forward. But if we don't build a principles framework around it, we're going to get in trouble. Well, I think Noah gets a bad deal. Uh, I believe that they, they, they talk about even... The commentators and Rashi talks about the fact that would he been a righteous person of the generation. I think that he not only invented the plow, he also was the first one to recognize and give honor to grandparents. He did so much, and we are all children of Noah. He saved humanity. He doesn't get as much credit for that, even though people say we're from Adam, the first man. But Noah certainly was innovator. He did wine, and people think of people think of thousands of years ago. People were backwards. I'm I'm struck by thinking of Jonas Jonas and Ivish says the Tower of Babel. They were trying to build a rocket to go up to to, to God. So there were certainly were a lot more advanced than we give them credit for, and uh, from technology point of view. Yeah, they you know there's innovation in every generation, and every generation you know has its own challenges. Before I let you go, Michael, what has been your biggest challenge? That's a really great question. Um, I, I think there's a couple. Um, so I won't just mention one. I think um, it's it's really important to stay focused on on what you set out to do originally. And, you know, for me, that's creating the 10,000 or 100,000 jobs. And I think Rav Amitalu told me that would move the goalpost. And I, you know, in a world where people are throwing around uh, investments in millions and billions and hundreds of millions, you know, money can be challenging. And I think staying focused on that goal is, is a real challenge. And I, you know, and I think the, you know, the second element is we live in a chaotic time right now and, and we've lost principles and, and, it, and, um, and there's also kind of increasing gaps between technology has and technology have nots in society. And I think we, you know, it's, 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 you can get caught up meeting with all these smart entrepreneurs and engineers every day um, and forget that it's only five or 6% of the Israeli workforce and probably some smaller percentage of the American workforce. And, and I think that's a challenge every day of how we, how we, how we spread these blessings. And uh, that's really important to me. No, it's important to spread the blessing and thank you for doing what you're doing, employing people. You took Ravami Tals. You didn't know your factory, but you certainly employed thousands of people, uh, which is so important to give people work is even is, is the highest form of charity anyway. And we're living in high tech has certainly invigorated Israeli society because Israel is a leader in high tech, a leader in technology. And thanks to people such as yourself uh, for doing that. And we appreciate you being here with us. 
Michael Eisenberg is co-founder, general partner of Olive and Early Stage Venture Capital Fund with over $500 million under management. He's written a few books, uh, three of them in English. His latest one is called The Tree of Life and Prosperity, Eight Sechayim Vakesev, Economic Principles from the Book of Genesis for the 21st Century. The other books will be coming out. When, when's the next one coming out in English? Michael. I need to ask my editor. It's, he's got it now, and I'm uh, I'm eagerly waiting for it. This is, you know, it's been it's been a whirlwind. This book in English, and I, I'm just I feel so so blessed by all my partners and and my family and my wife and, and the support they've given to to let me publish this book and and the editors. And uh, I hope we can get more out. We need to spread Torah. We look forward to having you back again, and thank you for being able to. You're actually this is Torah Mada. You're able to blend both. So thank you for joining us. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. For continuous Jewish programs, hawklinenetwork.com or our 24-hour-a-day listen line at 641-741-0389. For past shows, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms or jewishpodcast.org. Thanks for listening to the TalkLineNetwork.com. TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.